be opening your Bibles to the 41st chapter of the book of Isaiah. A comment and clarification uh, from last week's lesson. Uh, We talked in chapter 40 about the fact, uh, or we've talked about the greatness of God and the smallness of man and how, uh, if you will read back through that chapter, that God looks on Oh, the exact quote there is that, uh, this is 42, the wrong way. Uh, He talks about the insufficiency of sacrifice. He talks about the fact in verse 17 that the nations are nothing and they're counted to him as less than nothing and worthless. Um, And there's a... I got at least one comment after the class that said, you know, well, you know, you mentioned that they are as nothing before him and worthless, but obviously these are the same nothing and worthless people that he sent his son for. And so, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really think I had to make that clear, but obviously that is, you know, even though he looks upon the nations as nothing because of his greatness and our smallness in his sight, uh, we are not so small. That he did not send his that he did not send his son to die for us. So um, that that came about after class, and I got um, I got talked to about that. So anyway, okay. So chapter forty-one. Uh, what we're dealing with here in these chapters from forty all the way to sixty-six to the end of the book, we are now dealing with the coming Babylonian captivity. We are dealing with what happens after the captivity. And we are dealing with the instruments that God will use to tell the people to come home. And so all of these chapters now will talk about one of those three things, in addition to talking about the Messiah who will come and all of the things that Messiah will will bring and will do. And so in chapter 41, the first... um, Oh, gosh, the first uh, 10, 12 verses of this are talking about uh, the coming... Release of the people who are not even in captivity yet. So this presupposes that the, uh, this, is, this, is, this is that predictive prophecy that we talk about so much in the book of Isaiah where he talks about things that are going to come to pass. Some of these things, for instance, with regard to Cyrus, which he'll talk about here in, in chapter 41 and then again in chapter 44 and again in chapter uh, 45 where he, he talks about Cyrus. Cyrus hasn't even, Cyrus won't be around for 150 years, a century and a half before Cyrus even draws breath. Isaiah is calling him by name. And this is predictive prophecy. And if you want to study more of predictive prophecy, study the prophecies with regard to historical events that will happen. And you look in the book of Daniel, you look at the, you look at the rise of the Babylonians, then the Medo-Persians, and then the, the Greeks, and then the Romans in that statue uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had. Uh, all of this predictive prophecy in, in addition to the predictive prophecy about the coming of Christ. So in verse 2 of this, who, who raised up one from the east? Well, geographically, when, these, when the Assyrians come down, they come from the north and from the east. That's the easiest way to get to, uh, into the, the area of, uh, of Israel and, and the land of the, the house of Jacob uh, or the, the house of Judah. 
Um, so they're coming from the east. Who is righteous? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him? Who made him to rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, or as driven stubble to his bow to his bow? This is talking about. This is predictive prophecy talking about Cyrus, and this is what Cyrus. This is what Cyrus is going to. Uh, this is when Cyrus is going to come. 150 years from now, but he's going to come. And so it talks about the way that he comes. It says the coastlands in verse 5 saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Uh, if you read any historical uh, of the historical accounts of these conquering peoples who came and conquered the house of Israel, conquered the house of Judah, uh, this is what they, they, they just swooped down from the north and from the east. Uh, down along the mountain ranges there on the on either side of the of the Mediterranean, they come down and they they come into this area and they do just exactly this. They, the the people will see it in fear. Uh, it lists a, a long name, a list of names of the people that Cyrus would conquer uh, in getting to uh, getting to uh, this land and conquering it and then allowing the people then uh, when they release from captivity, he releases them from captivity and, and comes home. And they come home. Cyrus is the king of Persia. He was the first. Who was his son? Yes. Well, he defeats Babylon. He defeats Babylon. Babylon right now is at its at its preeminence. And Babylon will come in 561 B.C. and they will take the children of Israel into captivity for 70 years. Cyrus will then come to the throne and conquer Babylon because he's a Mede. And he comes to conquer, and he conquers the Babylonians and releases the children. Now, who is, who is Cyrus's, who is Cyrus's son? Cyrus' son is, is Darius, or Darius, the first. And we read about him in Esther. We read about his son, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, in Esther. So that is why if you look at your chronology of the Bible, Esther is, Esther is not where it's supposed to be in, in a, in a, in a historical standpoint. Esther is way down here past Ezra. And so it's important to know, it's important that you know who these people are and their descendants because these are the people that, that play a large role. These are not, these are not just, these are not just bit players. These are active players on the world stage. Uh, Xerxes, for instance, went up against the Greeks. And his son Xerxes I, uh, went up against the Greeks also, uh, constantly trying to conquer the, the, uh, the land of the, uh, of the Greeks. So this is this is prior to this is prior to even the Babylonian captivity. That's why Isaiah spends so much time talking about it. He spends time talking about you're going to go into captivity, but you're going to be released from this captivity. And so this is the theme for the remainder of, of the book of Isaiah. Um, and so you read down through here, but you Israel, verse eight, but you Israel are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, uh, my friend. So one through seven. One th- verses 1 through 7 are talking about, uh, in a broader sense, refuge. There is a refuge that people take, a refuge in the world. Uh, there's a refuge that people take in God. And those are the two contrasting refuges, refuges that people take. Now, in modern time, people take refuge in the world for a variety of reasons or through a variety of mechanisms. Um, people take refuge in drugs. People find refuge in alcohol. They find they find uh, refuge in uh, a wide variety of things. Uh, these days, the social experiment for uh, social media. People find refuge in that. People live for that. 
you know, you can't, you see people that can't go five minutes without looking at their phone. They can't go, they can't go five minutes without checking their status of what they're doing, telling people what they had for lunch and telling people what they're going to eat for dinner and telling them when they're going on vacation, you know, so the burglars can break in while they're gone. You know, so, you know, it's, and there's this, there's this refuge in the world that people take in human affection by wanting things that are not theirs outside of their marriage possibly or uh, in, in, in living a lifestyle that's wholly unsatisfactory to God. But then there's the refuge which is true. And that's the refuge which is the one that we can confidently rely on, and rely on. And that's what he talks about in verses 2 through 4. You know, he talks about this one who is going to be raised up and he's going to come, he's going to come, but... Who has performed it and done it, calling the generations from the beginning in verse 4? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. And so we see this repetitive, we see this repetitive figure of God being the great I am. We see it in Moses, where he says, you know, take off your sandals for ground which you're standing is holy ground. And, you know, he want, Moses wants to know, who, who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am sent you. If we look in the New Testament, for instance, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, and we put the word he in there, but you take that word he out, it's the true translation, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so God, Christ, the, the great I am, he says that I am the first, I am the last, I am, I am the last, and I am he. And so even though this man comes, he is being... Directed by me, he is taking, he is doing what I have appointed him to do. Okay, so verse seven begins his discussion of about these idols. So the craftsman encourages the goldsmith, who smooths with the hammer, inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, "Is it ready for the soldering?" Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. And if you go down, if you look at the any of the concordances in verse seven, there is a reference to First Samuel. And if you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, and when they arose early in the morning, there was Dagon. This is the, this is the demigod, remember, that they had fashioned an idol out of, the Dagon, and they had put Dagon over the, over the hearth or, or near the, the Ark of the Covenant. And so it says in 1 Samuel 5 and 4, when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left uh, of it. And so, you know, he talks about the fact that, you know, you need to make your idol where it doesn't totter. And you're, build, you're building this God that you're going to worship and you have to build him so he doesn't fall over. And is this really, you know, is this really the God uh, that you want? And he goes on to say that, but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. So you're going into captivity, but fear not, for I am with you, verse 10. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so he goes through this whole, uh, this whole dialogue with the people telling them not to fear that they are going to have a redeemer, not only a redeemer who is going to release them from captivity, but later on a redeemer who will save them from their sins. 
The poor and the needy seek water, verse 17, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the Lord God, will not forsake them. He will not leave them in captivity with the Babylonians, but he will free them through this, through this individual that will be coming from the north. That you may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The hand of the Lord is going to be the one that frees you. The hand of the Lord is going to be the one that gets you out of this captivity. And the Holy One of Israel has created it. And then in verse 21, down through the end of the chapter, he makes a he makes a direct he makes a direct uh, uh, challenge, if you will, um, to the idols. And he's talked. He talks in in verse 21. Uh, God says, "Present your case. Bring forth your strong reason," says the King of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were. That we he's still he's, he's challenging these idols. Will you tell me? You give me predictive prophecy. Tell me what's going to happen. Tell me what has happened. Tell me why it's happened. I have raised one up from the north. Uh, in verse 24, he says, uh, in 23, he says, show the things that are to come hereafter. So give us, you know, your, these idols that they've carved from, from wood and from silver and they've crafted from silver and gold. They're mute. They don't say anything. And so he's, he's challenging them to show, show me the things, show the things that will come hereafter that, that, that we may know that you are God. Yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing. And your work is nothing. And who chooses you is an abomination. Now, they're choosing idols of silver and gold and, and of wood. What are the, what are some of the idols that we choose today? What are some of the idols that man chooses today? Money, television, social media, all those kind of things. What keeps what keeps people from the service of the Lord? What keeps people from being here this morning over and above the current state of the world, the circumstance with COVID and everything? What keeps people from the service? You hear people say, well, you know, I can worship God in the great outdoors while I fish or while I play golf. Or I can, I can worship God while I'm sitting in the, Titan, in the stands you know, watching the Titans play. You know, I can worship God that way. Oh, okay, well, you know, these, these, these become people's gods. Anything that you sacrifice, anything that you set aside, as opposed to going to worship, as opposed to being here with your church family, anything that you do that is not related to that could be considered your idol. Well, I just have to work. Well, sometimes you do have to work. But, you know, there are people who will volunteer to work on Sundays. Well, that's not that's not a choice. My wife is not here today. She has to work on every third weekend at the hospital. So she's not here today. That's just the schedule that she that we live by. And so, you know, what is it? You know, what are some of the things? And you can just think about some of the things that people use as their idols today. And I think money. I think money is the biggest one. Money is a big driver. Money is a huge driver. I don't have enough money, so I've got to pick up a shift on Sunday, or I've got to do this, or I've got to do that to take me away, take me away from the worship. Well, you, you, you may have to, but you may also, you know, need to look at maybe a lifestyle change that doesn't force you to have to do that. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, and, and you know we and the Bible says that you know we, we that these the people worship their own bellies. You know they're they're just they're looking after their own interests as opposed to the interest of God. Um, they're looking after they're looking after things that uh, that possibly you know there are not 
they're not good things to, to look after. So he goes in verse 25 and says, I have raised one up from the north. Again, this is another implication uh, of one who is coming 150 years from now. He shall come from the rising of the sun. He shall call on my name. He shall come against princes as through mortar, as the potter treads the clay. And so he, he, again, he talks, he talks about this, uh, this individual who is coming uh, 150 years, uh, prophecy that is predicting the coming uh, of this of this one so chapter 42 chapter 42 is a declaration of the messiah and his coming and we look at some of the some of the terms and some of the uh, some of the things that are said about uh, the coming messiah behold my servant whom i uphold my elect one in whom my soul delights. He's certainly not talking about Cyrus here. He's talking about the Messiah, the Lord's chosen servant. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So here is one who is coming, predictive prophecy, one who is coming who is going to give justice to the Gentiles. Now, there are some interesting characteristics that this individual who is coming um, portrays. And in verse 42, he talks about the fact he will not cry out. Well, there were many who came, according to Josephus, there were many who came saying that they were Messiah, who would stand on the corners and shout to the people and talk to the people. And you see, I see, I've seen these very same people on on college campuses. If you go to a college campus, there's always somebody on a corner preaching, standing on a soapbox or standing on some kind of a carton or something, and they're talking to the crowd. Anybody who'll come by, they're crying out to the people. Well, he's saying that Jesus is not going to cry out. Jesus had no need to. Jesus had no need to cry out. The people followed him. If you look at the the gospel accounts uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there there were people that followed him daily. And so he doesn't have the need to cry out, nor will he raise his voice. Now, the only time that I can think of that he ever raises his voice is in the, is in the temple when he, you know, uh, sends the money changers scattering. But, you know, even he doesn't raise his voice, nor does he cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised rod he will not break. What does that mean? A bruised rod or a bruised reed, sorry, a bruised reed he will not break. He's gentle. You know, Sennacherib talked about, if you look back in Isaiah, uh, what was it, 36, verse 6, Isaiah talked about the fact that the house of Jacob was relying on Egypt, a broken reed. And so something that's broken, uh, something that's broken will not, uh, you know, will, will not defend or will not hold anything up. But a bruised reed, he will not break. And smoking flax, he will not quench. Now, what's he talking about there? Was smoking? He's smoking flax. So, what is flax? First of all, it's like a it's like a, a group of sticks together, a group of kindling. So, even there, even though with the people that he's going to interact with, even though there's going to be maybe just a spark, he's going to nurture that spark. He's going to. If you've ever started a fire and you've you've got the kindling, you've got the little the little bitty grass and stuff and you start that going you get a little spark in there and you and you tend that spark and you make that flame grow this is the same thing that messiah will do he will take a small spark within a human being and he will make that he will turn that spark in, into a smoldering fire that will turn in that will turn into a bigger fire sure yeah yeah got him down to 10 yeah 
right? Right. So, you know, the bruised reed, there's nothing, there's no one so, there's no one so bruised or broken that Christ would not heal them. There's no one that has that spark, that, that small glimmer of hope inside them that he will not fan. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and, and that which comes from it. And when you say that which comes from it, everything that, come, everything that comes from the earth, food, Precious metals, everything that the people of that day and time would know, everything that we know that God, we know that that uh, that God brings that that God brings all this forth. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it? I, the Lord, have called you to righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. And then he talks about in verse seven to open blind eyes. To bring prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. So let's talk. Let's let's take each one of those apart. What is he talking about when he's talking about to open blind eyes? What's Messiah going to do? Two types of blindness. What are the, what are the types? Of, what are two types of blindness? There's physical blindness. We know he heals the blind people. What's the other type of blindness? Spiritual blindness. So he's going to open the eyes of the people. He's going to make the blind. He's going to open the blind eyes. He's going to bring a kingdom that is going to bring prisoners from the prison. Who who were these people imprisoned by? They were imprisoned by the Babylonians initially. And he's going to bring them out of prison. What does he do for us today? Are we prisoners? We're prisoners to sin. And Christ came to bring prisoners, in this case prisoners of sin, from the prison. Those who are sit in darkness, he gave what? He gave light so that, they could, so that they could see, to open their blind eyes to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another. Now he goes back to this thought about these carved images. Nor my praise to a carved image. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. And so when we look at when we look at the coming of Messiah, there is this, in, this this indication that he is behold my servant. So someone who serves has a spirit of obedience. Christ was obedient in all things, even to the death on the cross. So we must be as he was. We must be obedient. We must be as he was about our Father's business. We must be what he was. We must complete the work that he was sent to do. We do not do our own will. As Jesus said, I don't do my own will. I do the will of who? Of him who sent me. And that's what we need to be doing. We need to be doing the will of him who sent me. Spirit of obedience. And there is, a, there, there is in this uh, an excellency which attracts. And when he says this in, in the verse where he says, Whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. He is, in effect, in the New Testament saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So there's an excellency that goes along with this. There's an excellency that he upholds him. It's found in, it's found in conjunction with his pleasure in what Christ did, his spirit, his attitude, his behavior. Everything that he did called forth that excellence from God. Okay? So he will not cry. There was a quietness of his mood. 
uh, a bruised reed. He has, uh, Jesus had what is called by scholars a patient hopefulness. He was not rushing people, he was not rushing people down to the water to get them baptized. He was simply telling them what was coming and they were, they were responding to him. Um, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't have to raise his voice. Um, he was there to work. He was there to suffer uh, until his task on earth was complete. So um, then he talks about in verse 10, he goes to talking about singing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, your coastlands and your inhabitants, let the wilderness and the cities lift up their voices. This following up in talking about um, in talking about the coming Messiah is that God is going to work for them. He is going to go forth in verse 13 as a mighty man, stirring up his zeal like a man of war. He will cry out, yes, he will shout aloud, he shall prevail against his enemies. And then he says in verse 14, I've held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself, and now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and dry up all the vegetation. I will make the, co- the rivers coastlands, and I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them, crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed. Who trusted in carved images? Who says? Who said to the molded images, you are our gods? And so he talks about the fact that he is going to, he is going to be the arbiter of their freedom. He is going to be the one that says, you know, that he is going to take Cyrus as his instrument and he's going to use Cyrus to free the people. He's going to use them to come back. He's going to use them to come back by a way that they did not know. But he also says, he follows that up in verse 18 by talking about Israel's failures. They failed to hear him. They failed to see God for who he is. They failed to worship him. They failed to be obedient to him. And he says, hear you deaf and look you blind that you might see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but you do not observe. Opening the ears, but you do not hear. And there's a, there's a constant, uh, there is a constant reference to uh, these sorts of things in, in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New where he talks about the fact that you hear, you have ears, but you don't hear. You have eyes and you see, but you don't really see. And so here again he's talking about the Israel's failure, and because of their failure, they are robbed, they are plundered, they're snared in holes, they're hidden in prison houses, they are for prey and no one delivers them, for plunder and no one says restore, verse 22. Who among you... Will give ear to this. Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, nor were there. Why were the children of Israel in the situation that they were in? They were in that situation because of all the things that he's just, he's just read off to them. That he's just said to them. You're in this situation because you had, you, you had eyes to see. All the marvelous, miraculous things that God could do for you, and just didn't pay any attention. Uh, if you're watching the, uh, if you're watching the or reading the Lehman Learner, 
you're reading about the sad, the sad consequence of the people coming into the land after crossing the Jordan and not doing what God said. One time it was one person in his family. One time it was the first time it was Achan who saw something that he wanted and he coveted that and he took it and caused the whole, the whole house of Israel to sin. And then it was making a bargain with people who were not supposed to even be alive. God had given a direct commandment to the, to the house of Israel to not spare anyone. And yet... They thought it would be better to make these alliances, or in some cases they were fooled by these alliances, or fooled into making these alliances. And so as they are fooled into making these alliances, sin corrupts the camp yet again. And so what we see is this is the sad, this is the sad result that is going to bring about the fact that they are, uh, they're ready for plundering. They're be, being ready to be given to the robbers. Verse 24. Was it not the Lord? He against whom you have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. And we see the sad, we see the sad repetition in Joshua and Judges, where the people sin, they're taken into captivity, they, re, they regret what they've done, they repent, God gets them free again, they come back and they start the whole cycle again. All the way through the Judges. Therefore he has poured on them the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, it has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know, and it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. And so these people are, are, are reaping the sad benefits of what uh, they have done with regard to uh, not following God's rule, not following God's will uh, for them and doing the things that would have been for their benefit. So verse in chapter 43, chapter 43, we... We find God again talking about um, his care for the house of Israel. Um, who has he formed this nation for? Well, it says in here that he has formed the nation for himself. For now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. So this house, this, this house of Israel belongs to God. No matter what they do, how much they disappoint God, he is always there for them. When they pass through the waters, I will be with you, through the rivers that, will, that shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, a bit of a history lesson for them now. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. And so here in the, the opening verses of chapter 43, he's renewing his promise to Israel that he is their protector, that he is their deliverer. No matter what they get into, if they are, they are of a repentant state, he will move forward with forgiving them and deliver them out of this captivity. So he says in verse 5, fear not, I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. Now he's talking directly about, and this is predictive prophecy, about them coming back home. They're coming back home when Cyrus gives them uh, the edict that they go back and they rebuild. Uh, they go back and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. I will say to the north, 
He will say to Cyrus, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Bring out the blind who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together. Let the people be assembled. Whom among them can declare this and show former things. Let them bring out the witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say, it is the truth. So they are going to be his witnesses. You are my witness, he says, and my servant whom I've chosen. Goes on down through and talks about those that are declared and saved, those that I have proclaimed. There is no foreign God and there was no foreign God among them. Therefore, you are my witnesses that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am. Again, this emphasis on him being the I am. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work and who will reserve it? Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, of the ho- I'm the, I am the Lord your Holy One, the Creator of Israel. And so he goes down through this and talks about the... Uh, the effect of them coming home. Uh, you have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings. You've not done the things, he says, that you were commanded to do. Uh, you, have, you have not burned the incense. You've not wearied, uh, nor wor- wearied you with incense. You've brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you've burdened me. You've burdened me with your sins. And I wonder sometimes if when we think about things like this, that we burden God with our sin. And we are sometimes no better. You've wearied me with your iniquities. You've burdened me with your sin. You've wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am able or am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And we've talked about this over the last few weeks. We've talked about the fact that when God forgets a sin or when you repent of sin, God puts that sin behind his back. He casts it into the depths of the ocean. Um, He makes it to where it is remembered against you no more. But he then says, put me in remembrance. Remember me, he says. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary, and I will give Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. And so, in this, God has set out the fact that he is going to work for their deliverance if they are of a repentant state, that he is still their God, he is still their right arm, and that he will, uh, that he will save them from this, on, this coming this coming. Uh, captivity that they're about to go into. Okay. Uh, chapter 44, I think we'll be able to get into this a little bit. Chapter 44, again, God continues to talk about this spiritual recovery and this generation. This is closely, it's really just added, it's just closely connected with chapter 43. Uh, and, and really this chapter forms the whole conclusion. Um, the prophet here is trying to Tell the people that even though they have profaned, they have sinned against God, there is a bright prospect that's coming. And so while captivity will occur, captivity will end one day, you will be released. And he's trying to get them to look at, um, you know, he's holding out this hope to them in this, in this chapter 44. Now, yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. 
So, again, he repeats these things. For I am the Lord who made you. I formed you from the womb. I will help you. Fear not. You are the ones that I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the, they will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. One will say, I am the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. And so beginning in verse 46, he has a short set of verses there in verses 6, 7, and 8, where he talks about the fact that besides me, beside me, there is no, there is no God. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. He's the first. He's the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who can proclaim as I do? Again, this is a direct refutation to the idols, the the idols that sit there mute and dumb, blind, cannot see. They're simply carved instruments, and the people worship them. And God says, you know, who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order before me. Another challenge. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these, let them show these to them. Do not fear, do not be afraid. Have I not told you that from that time and declared it, you are my witnesses? Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Then he spends the remainder of the chapter except for the last few verses, down through verse 20, uh, verse 9 through 20, talks about the folly, the folly of idolatry. Now, Cyrus was an, was, an, was an idol worshiper. That did not stop God from using him to, to his purposes. And so there are those who make an image. All of them are useless, and their, their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. You've got a, an idol sitting on uh, something, and you're worshiping that idol, and that idol doesn't see you. It doesn't know you. Uh, it doesn't even know when, it's, when, when you are ashamed. So who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? So there is profit to be made from the molding or the making of these uh, of these images. Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet shall they fear. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with a hammer, works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, after all this, he's still hungry. His strength still fails. He drinks no water and and is faint. The craftsman, as opposed to the blacksmith, the craftsman stretches out the rule. He marks one with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He has a plan. He marks it with a compass, makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in his home. And so at every at every point, at every juncture here, he's talking about all of these things that are created beings. He cuts down cedars for himself, takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine. The rain nourishes it. And then it shall be for a man to burn, for he shall take some of it and warm himself. And then the other portion of it, he kindles and bakes bread. And then another portion of it, he takes the rest of it, that, and he makes an idol out of it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats his meat. He roasts the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, a carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, deliver me, for you are my god. They do not 
know, verse 18, they do not know, nor do they understand. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, wait a minute, I've burned half of this in the fire, I've baked part of it in the bread, uh, part of it in the coals to bake bread, I've roasted meat and eaten it, and now I'm going to take the rest of it and make it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on the ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And so, again, this challenge goes out to these idol-worshiping people. This is a repetitive theme of Isaiah's, and it brings into, it brings into focus um, these people that they're going to be amongst. And as we read the books of Daniel... And as we read Ezra and Nehemiah, they are, they are beset by people who are idol worshippers on every hand. The Babylonians have their idol worshippers. You can read about all of those things that happen uh, with, in the book of Daniel about the idol worship. Uh, you, you, can, you read about uh, Nebuchadnezzar who says, you know, everyone who doesn't bow the knee to this, to this great image that he's made, we're going to cast him into the fire. And so God is telling them that, you know, these, these, things, are, these things are of no avail. These, these things are not the types of things from something that is going to redeem you as the Lord will redeem you. And so he spends the remainder of the 44th chapter talking about that. Remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. God does not forget his own. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. Here's a yet another example uh, that we can see of how God blots out transact- transgressions. He blots them out like a thick cloud. And like a cloud your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. And so there is, a, there is redemption coming at the hand of the Lord. And he tells them to sing to the heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout to the lowest parts of the earth. Bring forth your singing. The Lord is your Redeemer. He formed you in the womb. This is multiple times that he makes mention of the fact that he saved them. He formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things. I stretch out the heavens all alone. Who spreads out? Who spreads abroad the earth by myself? Who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives the div- 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 diviners, diviners, diviners mad? Who turns a wise man backward and makes their knowledge foolishness? Who confirms the word of his servant, performs the counsel of his messengers. Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise her up in waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I'll dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, now in verse 28 of chapter 44, he makes mention of his name specifically 150 years before he's even born. Century and a half. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So, hundreds of years, predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy emanates from almost every scripture in the Bible in the Old Testament talking to us about, we talked about this last, someone is coming. Captivity is coming to the house of Israel. 561, captivity will come to the house. 
Cyrus, when he comes to the throne 150 years later from this predictive prophecy, will free the people. And he says right here, you shall build the city, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. To the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And so this section of the predictive prophecy with regard to Cyrus closely aligns itself with the last two chapters because we talked about that in 41, about someone will come from the north. Now we're tying, he's tying all this together. Do the people understand this? No. They don't understand this. It's only in later years when they're freed that they understand that God was trying to give them solace and comfort by saying you're going into a very bad place and you're going to be there for a long time. But when you come out of this, there's going to be one who is my instrument that I'm going to use to get you back home by a road that you've never come and to get your to get the city of Jerusalem rebuilt and to rebuild the temple at the hands of an idol-worshipping king who is God's instrument. And so the, the, the profound nature of that statement should not escape you in the fact that this man was an idol-worshipping king, but he was used, so even, even the most wicked or evil of people, and Cyrus was by no means an evil man. I'm sure he, I'm sure he probably had an evil side, but we don't see that. But even the most wicked, idol-worshipping men can be used uh, to God's service. So next week we'll start with uh, chapter 45, and that's, that's where he talks some more about Cyrus, God's instrument. Uh, and again, within two or three verses in 44 and 45, he uses his name twice. And so predictive prophecy is, um, is the, the big thing here for uh, this section of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's writings. And Lord willing, we'll talk about all that next week.